you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, the account of the golden calf might seem a bit strange on a profession of faith Sunday, or or rather a Sunday where we see profession of faith, to focus really on what is a sad display of sin. And yet I think it is appropriate, even as we think of that context of profession of faith, to be reminded of Israel, be reminded of the profession of faith they made, and the dangers that will approach us, as as well as what this chapter shows, the answer to sin. The answer to the sin of those who have covenanted themselves with God, who have professed their faith and fallen in such a grave manner, and yet find still intercession. We're going to treat Exodus 32 a bit different. I'm going to read the entirety of the text, but we're going to mostly focus on the passages that deal with the people's sin and Moses' response to it. This evening, in conjunction with Belgian Confession Article 26 and Intercession, we'll take the the segments of the text specifically where Moses intercedes and look at that. So this morning we're mostly looking at the details of the text, where this evening we will look at the intercession that Moses makes itself. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing upon it in prayer. Great Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, as we turn to what is a well-known text, what is a sad text in many ways, but also a text as many others in your word reveals, reveals truly grace in the midst of justice, reveals the gospel so clearly to us in this Old Testament way. As we look this morning at sin, we pray that you would smite our hearts, even as we think as well of the Lord's Supper, which we will partake of, to be reminded of the sin that is so embedded within us, the sin that still remains, though we deny it, though it is no longer our true representation. It is that old man that we fight against, and we see it in our forefathers, the people of Israel, in their sin. Help us to see all that you would through your word. May it be impressed upon our hearts. May it quicken those here who do not have faith or struggle in their faith to repent. May this text cause those who have true faith to be reminded, reminded of the walk that they are called to as well as the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, 
Please blot me out of the book of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Thus ends the reading of God's word. can let the words of that text sort of sink in, the gravity of it, all that is going on there, and it is, it is rich. It is full of so much, so much of Israel's history that will, that will proceed from this text is, is always brought back to this moment. There are many texts in God's Word that describe sin. There are many texts that describe the depravity of sin. We can think of the generation of the flood. We can think of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can think of many of the counts of the book of Judges, where we see sad displays of sin. And, and yet I would argue... This is one of the most monumental and sad displays of sin. Not necessarily because of the depths of it. Not necessarily because you can't go further than what they did, but because of the context in Exodus. Because they should have known better. Because of what had just transpired all around them. Because of the little details of the text that show what these people have done. And because of the pain dare we say, hurt that is brought to God himself. Can we attribute to God pain and hurt? Well, when we speak of God in the language as a man, that's the way the Bible speaks of him, so we could understand him. We know he is a great God. We know that he is not subject to changing passions, and yet he describes himself as one who has been wronged. The context of this chapter, we know it well. We've been going through Exodus You see, this picks up exactly where we left off in chapter 24 with the narrative. The narrative was the covenant was made in chapter 24. Moses and the elders ascend the mountain. They they see God. It's a great display of covenant faithfulness. They're gained access to Mount Sinai even because of this covenant and the blood sprinkled on them. They just then had said in response to the words of the covenant and the law given to them, this we will do. All that you have said of this covenant, all you have said of your law, we will do it. Exodus 24 ends, Moses and Joshua head up further. Moses leaves Aaron and her in charge, and they go down. And we then went with Moses. We we entered the glory cloud in God's word. We saw all that was given, and we saw all the detail of worship. We saw, it 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 was text, chapters and chapters, very detailed on how the worship of God would be conducted, and who would conduct it, and the priests. We saw that all of that was very intentional. It pointed to Christ. It was true worship. It was orthodox. It was good. It glorified God in every aspect. That's the plan given to Moses. And as that plan's given to Moses, the people who had just covenanted with God, who had just professed their faith, turn to Aaron and say, We don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know what was done with him. But make for us gods. Make for us an idol that we may depart from here and go, who will lead us to the land. And Aaron, the high priest, the one who did know better, does exactly what they say. 
See, that's the sorrow of this text. That's the sad display. I heard one commentator say this. Pastors have said this too. I think it is the best example of what's going on. This is really a spouse cheating at the reception of their wedding. That's what this is. That's the sad display in these covenantal proceedings, and that's what happens. We see it. We read, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together. And literally, the, the wording there is, they crowded around Aaron. So that should, should give you an idea. It wasn't a simple, hey, Aaron, this is a good idea we had. You know, Moses isn't there. Let's Maybe let's do this. It was a persistent crowding around. We could suggest that Moses was likely afraid of what they would do. This is the people persistently crowding around him. Do this. Do this for us. That's what they say. And then they say, the man, they say, they say, they crowded around Moses and say, up, make us gods. Who shall go up before us? As for this Moses, that is a slight against him. That's like saying, as for that guy, as for this man, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And you know, as we've gone through Exodus, the people are nothing without their intercessor, and that's what we'll see tonight. The people have nothing if they don't have their mediator. They lost it all, and so they're willing to cast off the very man who God called to bring them out, their representative, the one who has been literally the shield of the holiness of God, not because of his holiness, but because of his office protecting them. Now that guy, he's gone. We don't know what became of him. They turn away from Moses. And then the saddest part of this story at the center of it all is their desire to form a God after themselves and to worship that God the way they desire. That's what this, this text is about. I would submit to you there are two main points of this text. And I would say we'll look at the first and major point tonight when we look at intercession. That's really the center of this text, Moses' intercession, which, granted, we are skipping over right now. But the other main aspect of this is to show Israel this is what false worship of God does. And that's the sad part. They fashion worship according to their own desires. And this serves as an example of, uh, to, to us of what we call the regulative principle. How do we regulate worship? We only worship God as he has commanded. And that's clear in this text. You only worship God the way he has set up in his word according to the principles of scripture. You do not fashion a God or worship him just what's according to your desire in ways he specifically commanded you not to do. He had given the Ten Commandments already. The people have agreed to the law of God that you will not make an idol and worship in that way, and that's exactly what they do. And the idol that they form is a golden calf, something very common to the pagan practices of Egypt itself and the surrounding nations. So they don't just, it's bad enough forming an idol. That's, that's, you can't get past that. And then the sad display continues that the very land in which they were brought out of, the very gods that God smote with his mighty hand, let's fashion Yahweh the Lord that way, as a pagan god. And then let's prostrate ourselves before him. Let's go and let's, let's eat and drink and rise up to play. What does rise up to play mean? Well, there are definite sexual connotations in that term. 
The other terms give us an idea of drunkenness, debauchery, pagan practice, pagan worship. That's what they did. Fashioned a false god in the image of the Lord. And How can I say that? Well, you see, there's a certain amount of, I I don't want to say confusion, it's not confusion, but but you see there's a plurality that they are, are, are giving to this god. Let's make these gods, and that's why the text translates it that way, that way, but we shouldn't necessarily take this to mean they've turned away from the Lord wholly, as if they were like, okay, we're done with them, give us new gods. We can see that from what Aaron says. He, he, he gives a festival, he says, tomorrow we will get up early and we will worship the Lord, he says, Yahweh, and we'll give burnt offerings and peace offerings to them. Maybe we can try to, to, to think well of Aaron, maybe he's trying to redeem a little of their practices, But you see here that they're adopting pagan worship, giving a pagan idol to the Lord. Because we can say, how can they justify themselves? How could they fall so quickly? Well, the answer is, they likely did not think that they were turning from the Lord wholly. They had that pesky little problem that the worship they wanted was commanded by God not to be done. But you you skip over that a little bit. You can, you can say, well, we are worshiping the Lord. We're just worshiping him this way, in this way he hasn't commanded. That is very likely what's going on amidst a confusion. This is an orderless worship. Just what were all the Israelites thinking? No doubt there were some very confused as to what was going on and worshiping perhaps other gods that they, that they had, that they had known. But there was most definitely those who were trying to worship the true Lord and in this despicable way. You know why that makes it even more sad? Let's use the example of marriage. It's one thing to try to please your spouse by doing something that they don't like that you didn't know. That's one thing. Now, you, we should know them well enough, perhaps, and we could say that you shouldn't make that mistake. But how much worse is it to try to do something nice and loving to your spouse, and that's the thing they hate, and then try to say, no, 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 this is me showing love to you. That thing you hate. That's what, I'm, that's what we're doing. That's how sad this is. You see, corrupted worship of the true God is in one sense worse than just false worship of a God. Doing exactly the thing he hasn't called you to do. And you know better. That's what we of God's people know. We've been given the right demands of worship. We are called to worship according to those principles, to give the worship of God that he asks for. You know, we have a lot to learn from this text. Boys and girls, this is the very reason we structure worship, that we worship this way, the way that we do. You could question everything we do in our worship service today and say that that's not a good and effective way of worshiping God, nor is that the way that most people would desire. Right? You have a lot of scripture reading. People get bored with listening to people read. Probably should get rid of that. You have that thing, that sermon, where you get yelled at sometimes, where you get called out on your sin, where you get brought to that same old message of the gospel. There's probably better ways of doing that. No one likes to be yelled at. No one likes to be exhorted. No one likes to have their sins point out. No one likes to be told what to do. Get rid of, the, get rid of that message. 
singing. Well, why do we have that old-fashioned stand-up and all sing together when we could have professionals come up and play their instruments and have much better worship and much better singing? And by the way, I do like all your voices. I'm not saying that. but Oh, but it could be so much better if we, if we trained people and had them come up and, and they could worship. They could worship for us. We don't need to stand and sing. We'll make it a concert. Do it that way. Prayer. You know how long those congregational prayers can be? Let me tell you, boy, we just lose all concentration. Why would we do that? Why do we read God's law every week? Boy, is that dull. You see, this is what everyone could say about our worship. Boys and girls, we do what we do in worship. That's what God commanded. He commanded the reading and preaching of his word. He commanded his people to sing and praise him in song. Commanded prayers to be offered in every way, in all types and kinds of prayers for his people. You see, the question we should ask is, rather, our worship in line with God's word, is this the worship he desires? Or are we, like so many so-called churches in the world, offering to him pagan worship and slapping his name on it? There are other ways of ordering worship. We're not saying that this, that what we do in our church or our churches is, is the only correct way of ordering this, the only correct way of doing it. The question to say is, is what we're doing right? Are we fulfilling the worship that God asks of us? That's actually at the center of this text. We might not see it, we might miss it, but that's what's going on here. How do you worship the Lord? We know how important worship is just by going through these last chapters. And so we see the, the, the sad display. And so we see also that they could so quickly fall into sin because they thought well, we're worshiping the Lord. But there's another way they could have so quickly fallen into sin. And to see that, we need look no further than our own hearts. How often don't we say in our passions, all the Lord said I will do? going to obey you, Lord. How often don't we say, yes, Lord, we'll do it. And then to fall mere moments later into the very thing we said we wouldn't do. To commit the same sins that we promise not to do. You see, I say that, why? Because these people are no different than us. They, they show our same hearts. They show how we do fall so quickly into idolatry, into sin. We fashion false images of God all the time. And we don't hold him to the, the exact way he presents himself to his full love and righteousness and justice. We don't worship God properly. We've created a false image. We create a false image of God when we think, as they did, that at his very feet... As he's on the mountain, as they can look up and see the clouds and thunder and that visible representation of the glory of God at his very feet. Fall into sin. Why? Because it's what we want. You see, we want to worship and live before God the way that fits our desires. That's exactly what the people of Israel were doing. You see the sad display of what it was. Look at, look at how, they, how, how the text represents them. 
It says that the, the people were even a, basically we could summarize and say, a laughing stock to their enemies. What's going on there? Moses talks about in the text to Aaron that he had allowed them to break loose. What's this breaking loose? Well, the idea is they were so enthralled and so engaged in this orderless pagan expression of worship that it was chaotic. And their enemies would look at them and say, look at those people. There is no order there at all. They have reckless abandon. This supposed military mighty people who are coming to take over the land, look at them and they scorn them. That's the expression. The idol worship has come into the camp of God and this should sting us. As we do it ourselves. Idol worship that God had not commanded. We need to learn from this that we are only to worship God the right way as he has commanded. And so we see that in this sad display. And now, like I said, we're going to skip verses 11 to 14 in the intercession that Moses gives. And we'll pick it up in verse 15 and following where Moses comes down. And this is where we see the fruits of idolatry. The fruits of idolatry are seen here in how Moses now has to pick up these pieces. The people have now engaged in idolatry. And and by the way, oh, how simple one little sin. The repercussions. Let's not miss that either. Oh, it's just it was just a day or two. Oh, how these actions can breed the very breaking of a covenant. But it wasn't that long. It was just a mistake, and yet look what happens. The fruits of idolatry are literally the breaking of the covenant itself. We read verse 17, Joshua hears this noise. And I love this verse just because it it so places you on this mountain with him. Joshua says there's a noise of war in a camp. You can just see it. They're up on this mountain. He hears this great orderless, chaotic, what's going on? There's music, but it's not just like orderly music. There's so much going on here. So he would say it's, it's almost as if there's war going on, and yet there's, there, there's not the accompanying sounds of war. Where's the mourning of defeat or the praise of victory? It's not that. That's not what we hear. It's this, it's this great debauched pagan worship service ringing in their ears, this commotion, Verse 19 says, And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Don't miss that. He literally went up to receive those tablets. Copies of the law of God, copies of the covenant itself. Very representation of what was made. And Moses comes down and smashes them to pieces. What does that mean? The covenant gone. It's broken. God has every right to wash him off the face of the earth. In fact, I just said that so much less impactful as it should be. In justice's action, for justice's sake, God should wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, we'll go to this this evening. We see why God didn't. It's because Moses acted in his office, in his role as a mediator. He saved the people. But now he comes down to deal with them, and you see what he does. 
He takes their idol and calf, and he does what Aaron should never have even allowed to do and what Aaron should have done with their request. And he takes it and he burns it with fire and he grounds it to powder. He scatters it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. Kelvin has a good expression of this. Try to follow Kelvin's words and what's going on here. Kelvin says this was that this was so that they would sense the gravity of their sin more deeply as well as reinforce their shame as the substance of their God was in their belly to be afterwards ejected. We know what he's saying. Their God that they prostrated themselves before, the God they said, He, this is the God who took us out of Egypt. This is the God who just just beat to a pulp all the gods of Egypt. This is the great God. This calf, we're going to worship him. And what did Moses do? He ground it into powder, had them drink it, so that they'd pass it through their system. What kind of a God is that? Do you see the shame that brings on our Lord? Who did those things? Who is so powerful that he can't be imaged by uh, by this creation of metal, let alone a calf that he had created, that he made lower than man? And so they grind it up. That's what Moses does. And then Moses turns to ultimately the one responsible, to Aaron. Aaron was left in control. Aaron... Moses says, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? The dangers of false leaders. Dangers of those who in weakness capitulate to sin. Such great sin upon them. We'll see the next few chapters what Moses now has to do to atone for this. Ultimately, we'll see what God's word presents as Christ's atonement for this. That's what, they, that's what they sowed in this sin. Aaron's response is one trying to deflect the blame. He says, you know these people. You know how they can be. They crowded around me. They said these things. He's true. He's speaking truth. And if we're trying to be as gracious to Aaron as we can, we can say he likely did what he did out of fear. He likely tried to redirect their false worship into maybe a worship of God in some way. And yet he was ultimately responsible. Kelvin says about this again. And, and as office bearers, as those who serve in office right now, as those who are taking up the mantle of office bearer, hear this. Kelvin says about this, Hence we gather how weighty a burden is borne by all who are appointed to be governors. For if any sin is committed through their negligence or timidity or idleness, they must themselves give account for it as if they had given the signal for the lewdness, as if they had commanded it themselves. As leaders, you cannot hide behind that. Well, I, I, I made the best of that really bad situation. I, I tried to just curb it. No, you should have stopped it. It should never have begun. That's what we as leaders are called to. That's what congregants are called to as well, but you see how much more Aaron is, is placed, placed on the stand here. He tries to give this lame, well, I took their gold and threw it in a fire and it popped out. Well, unfortunately for him, the text gives us the very details to show that that is just a lie. Verse 4 had said that when Aaron received the gold from their hand, he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. The text even says he took his tools to it or had others at least take their tools to fashion it. That's not what happened. It wasn't a miraculous making of an idol. He formed it. 
Having witnessed all this, verse 26 and following, Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Our modern American sensibilities are to, to balk at this and say, that's, that's horrible. And what we would actually say is, that's necessary. What the people of Levi are literally doing are saving God's people in this action. They're going through and they're putting to a halt the very thing that would consume the entire community, the very thing that justly condemned would wipe them out. Now, this is somewhat speculative, but most commentators and pastors would say and are in agreement that this is likely not an indiscriminate killing. It's likely not that they just ran through the camp and just anyone that they saw they could hack. Why, why would we say that? Well, 3,000 is actually a pretty small number, all things considering, and how large this community is, which would imply, again, this is a bit speculative, but imply there was a more purposeful killing to these. And it was likely those who were the ringleaders and responsible ones who had perpetuated this idolatry, or it's likely these were the ones who had been continuing this false worship and had not ceased. So that's, that's a very strong possibility of what's going on here. It's, it's not needed, though. I want us to see that. If, he, if they had gone through the entire camp and killed them all, that would not have been unjust because of the gravity of their sin. In this sad narrative, we see the beginnings of the tribe of Levi. We see why now they would be the tribe that would literally encamp around the tabernacle to protect the tribes of Israel. Why they were now taken to be the priests, the keepers in the tabernacle, the later temple. By this action, they show that they were for the Lord. They put themselves up as a very representation of a priest, an intercessor, a mediator, one who would act on behalf of God, and also those who would shield the rest from the wrath of God. That's what Levi does. And this is this sad display. This is where we'll leave them too. We'll leave them here this morning. This evening we focus on what's the true beauty. This text is full of beauty as well. We've been focusing on the sin, the sadness of it. As a little preview of what we'll talk about tonight, we'll see that the real beauty of the text shines in Moses and who he represents, obviously Christ how he represents them and shields them. I want to end with a reading from Psalm 106, 19 to 23. Psalm 106, 19 to 23. It says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And then notice especially this, Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. This is what we'll see in detail tonight. And though Moses is the one who accomplished this in Exodus, this is a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us, stands in the breach as God's chosen one to turn away God's wrath from destroying them. That's what you professed your faith in. That's what we saw this morning. 
That's why in just a moment we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper, where we are not turned away from God's presence, and where there are no Levites to protect us from God, where we need no one other than Christ himself and his body and blood, because the wrath of God is gone. We are not the covenant community in Exodus who have just failed so miserably and await the judgment of God. We are the covenant community that stands at the fulfillment of God's deliverance where we rush to God's presence and are not rejected, where we are given a sign, a sign to remind us that we are washed clean. We are brought into union with Christ by his body by his shed blood, by his sacrifice, the very things that should have been done to the whole community of Israel for their pagan sin done to him. And thus we are forgiven. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you. We ask that you would receive our prayer, receive our praise and thanksgiving for what we see that tonight we would as well see as we've just begun to see the glory of Christ and how you are that intercessor who stands in the breach to protect us. May we see ourselves, even as we come to the table, as a, a corrupt community in one sense, in one sense to be reminded of our sin, but then in the other sense may we cast off such a mantle for we are no longer clothed in an idolatrous garb. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is a profound good news gospel that we cling to. This is our profession of faith. It isn't on ourselves. On ourselves we fall just as they did. But we stand and hold to our true high priest who protects us. Pray this all in his name. Amen.